stand up and salute, we'll always recognize when we see old glory flying. There's a lot of men dead, so we can sleep in peace at night when we lay down our head. My daddy served in the army, we lost his right eye, but he blew a flag out in our yard. Till the day that he died, he wanted my mother, my brother, my sister and me to grow up and live happy in the land of the free. Welcome back to The Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, joined here by our host and star of this show, Jim Rooney. This is Toe the Rubber, episode 453 on the network. Just a single show today. So this is the uh, the, the lone show, which is rare for us on a day. We had some some days where we, we packed them in. So Jim's going to be towing the rubber today for, for all nine. He's got to carry the load for us. Before we bring him on, just want to thank our 67,000 subscribers and growing 74 countries. People think that's a lot, but there's 194 countries out there, so we still got some work to do to reach reach the world. Uh, but I want to thank you guys for your support. Make sure you check out Millions. Our merchandise dropped this, early this week. Got hoodies, got T-shirts, got hats. The, the hoodies and T-shirts are men's and women's, so uh, great, great gift for especially with springtime coming up, uh, baseball weather to get that hoodie for the morning games and the T-shirt for the afternoon, ball cap to keep the sun out of your eyes. Also want to thank Jaw Bats, RVG at checkout. I'll get you a discount on their Maple Bats, uh, newly certified by Major League Baseball. Tanner's using his M110, both lefty-righty. Jeff Fry had a pull-side double during fantasy camp with his C271 model. So RVG will get you that that discount that you want. And um, stay tuned this week as we get our menu up, where you'll be able to engage our hosts individually. Um, You know, you can hire them out to answer a question speak at an engagement virtually or in person, speak at a clinic, run a clinic, all sorts of good stuff, uh, or just a birthday message uh, for some of those that, that like that, that uh, kind of that quirky stuff. So um, lots of that will be up later this week. Uh, so you can engage our podcast members live and a little more intimate than, than what we do on the show here. So with that, Jim, welcome back to your show. Thank you, Dave. Hello, everybody. We got a lot of good stuff for for a pack pack show today. I got the show notes earlier on it, and I know we we warmed up. We always do that before the show. I, that's my mistake. I get you get you revved up early on, but uh, you know, with with our with our show, we're locked in on player development for all ages. Uh, obviously, you you are, uh, and I've I've used the word genius, and I don't use that lightly in terms of breaking this stuff down. So, uh, want to start today with the uh, you got an article review on the Tommy John epidemic if I read that right. Yes. Um, but something hit me just before we went on that uh, there's two topics that hopped up before we get into this article. Um, the first one was I saw, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're on the internet and you're, you're doing your thing and whether it's emails or, you know, your, your emails are flooded with all kinds of different advertisements, different baseball, different, you know, equipment, philosophies to train with me, all these type of things. And then you also see a bunch of things pop up, you know, when you're doing your work. And I saw something the other day that I think that if more people understood this fact or this concept, we in general, especially in the baseball community, not only all over the place, would be in a a much better place. And it was this uh, former Navy SEAL I don't know him. It was just popped up. I'm not uh, recommending him. I just saw one 
point that he made on some uh, podcast that he was on. And it was that professionals do not need recognition. You're not here to search for pats on the back. Do what you do. Focus on the task at hand and get it done. And, uh, you know, so when you cruise the Internet, especially nowadays, you see a lot of back and forth all over the place. Everybody wants to prove themselves correct. And then sometimes we prove ourselves correct and we're focusing on proving the other guy incorrect. And it really doesn't get us anywhere. It's not helping other people. It's not, you know, it, it's, it's designed for, as this guy put it, for recognition. All right? That I'm the brightest star in the room. Well, we don't have to be the brightest star in the room to help young baseball players. So that was one point. And then the next one, because... I, you know, I have this habit with, uh, with Alexa's and all the modern technology that I can listen to uh, New York sports radio in the morning when I'm taking the kids to school or doing some stuff in the home office. And uh, I started doing it because then when I talk to my dad back home in New York on a, on a su- Sunday or Sunday night, you know, there's some topics I'm sure that's going around in New York and we can talk about whether it's his Yankees or his Rangers or whatever. And um, this thing has popped up recently and these, these uh, talk show hosts, they go completely insane, yelling and screaming back and forth, whether it's yelling and screaming at the callers or back and forth at each other. That's all theatrics, no informational theatrics. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the point is, it's like, you know, really who, who is, uh, who is this guy that's telling me what's going to happen with the New York Mets and David Stearns and Pete Alonso? Who who is he? He's he's you know he's just a guy that uh, started out in the mailroom at some radio station and worked his way up, and next thing you know, he's uh, behind the scenes and he learns how to be the engineer or producer. And next, but his goal is to be on the air, and now he's on the air, and now uh, he has an opinion and he's expressing that opinion to you know millions of listeners, which. Hey, let's be honest. It's what we do ourselves, but uh, with less yelling and screaming. And this whole conversation has come up about what are the Mets going to do with Pete Alonso? And sometimes we, um, because we're not necessarily in the know, we look past the obvious. And in this case, for me, the obvious is the new uh, head of baseball operations and president of the New York Mets is David Stearns who came through, um, made a first name for himself, had worked in the Mets uh, front office uh, when he first got out of school, uh, went over to the Indians back and forth. I might have that wrong. Went to the Astros as assistant GM, worked under Jeff Lunau, then became the general manager in Milwaukee. Um, so I have some background with him. He's a good guy, you know. Like most people, we're all out trying to do the best we can with the information that we have. But look at the track record. I wasn't able to look it up because of uh, time restraints, but I do realize Milwaukee's a small market team. But during that course in time, has Stearns signed any Burroughs clients? I think the answer is no. Burroughs is going to take his player. He's going to take him through free agency. Uh, maybe if the player has some type of loyalties, uh, for example, you know, Aaron Judge, even though it was different representation, 
we might get the best offer and then, you know, go back to the Yankees or in this case, Alondo gets the best offer for the most money and goes back to the Mets and asks uh, Cone if he wants to match it. Now, that scenario might work itself out because everybody knows Cone's the richest guy in baseball. But we'll look at something. Stearns was general manager in Milwaukee when the amateur scouting department basically stated that there's no possible way they're going to take Alonzo in the first round, you know, based on value and that he's a right-handed, a college right-handed first base power hitter. Yeah, you talked about that last week. I remember because that's stuck in my mind as I've seen articles out there on Alonzo, including Kevin wrote one and thinking like that was the rule of thumb, right? Righty. Righty first baseman, whatever the history's been, is not a first round selection. Right. So if you take out one year where I don't know if he was injured or whatever, but the year shows up, he only played in 57, 57 games. He's had he's had a war of five point five, four point one, four point four, and three point two. His twenty twenty four projections are two fifty, thirty six homers, one hundred and two RBIs, and an OPS of eight forty five. So. What's interesting about that is it brings up uh, some, based on numbers, some similarities to players in the past. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jim Gentile, Baltimore Orioles, Otani, Reese Hoskins, Ron Kittle, Christian Walker, Carlos Quentin, Miguel Sano, John Jaha, Steve Balboni, and Matt Olson. Now, that's a pretty eclectic list there. And the difference is now is like, Okay, so who made money? Otani. Well, we know the reasons why. Uh, there's nobody on that list, other on that list, especially if you consider right-handed. Hoskins, Kittle, Walker, Quentin, Sano, Jaha, Balboni. Yeah. None of those guys made money, meaning they weren't at the top of the list as far as during their playing days and how much money they made. So if these are the things that, you know, the sabermetric uh, or analytical-based GMs, they don't see a value in that guy. Um, so his numbers, as you break, they're pretty similar to those guys you mentioned? Yes, yes. Um, so that's the point. Even though Pete Alonzo, I love Pete Alonzo. I think he's going to con- continue to go on and have a fabulous career and hit a lot of home runs. But you have to look at who's making the decisions and what similar decisions have they made in the past? And uh, those are the things to be looked at. So instead of everybody yelling and screaming on the radio and arguing what's going to happen, just look at some you know historical facts and then try to make a decision on what you think may happen. So yeah, they, they I I think it's a great point. Uh, <laughs> you know, we certainly are anything but yelling and screaming on this show, but. The point that I love that you're making, and I hope our audience grabs onto that too, these talk shows and even a lot of these podcasts are all about making dramatic statements, and they are effective attention grabbers. But uh, much like yourself, they try my patience beyond belief. I think they do most people that have half a brain listening to that stuff. Um, I like the point, though. I don't think anybody's brought that out about the track record of Stern. They're all caught up in the emotion of you know, what Alonzo means to New York, and New York is promised a championship and it's just typical New York stuff, but he's in a walk year too, is he not? Yes. And now here's the thing. They, they then did a, a, a breakdown of similar guys through their 28th birthday. And the right-handers are Cecil Fielder, Tony Clark, Richie Sexton, Glenn Davis, 
and that's it. The rest are lefty. So once again, all right, Glenn Davis, um, you know, had a neck injury that, that brought the end of his career. Richie Sexton, we know Richie Sexton. Tony Clark. Um, he was a switch, right? I don't know. I don't remember Tony Clark, but uh, I mean, I remember him. I don't remember a previous switch hitter. He could have been. And then Cecil Fielder. But once again, th- those are all quality baseball players, and they, you know, they hit their home runs and 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 stuff. But they never were the, uh, you know, top money earners. And you've got to know that Boris is going to be pushing for Alonzo to have uh, judge like money. Oh, absolutely. You know, so what's he twenty? He's young too, right? Twenty six, mid twenties. Uh, he is twenty eight. Oh, 28. As of last year, correct. Um, so that kind of leads into when we're talking about, you know, headlines that are attention grabbers and, and things to, uh, you know, bring the people in so that they either read the article or participate in the podcast or listen to the show or the radio or the television. So I come across an article uh, this past week. And uh, it was on baseball prospectus, which you would say is an analytical or saber matrician based, um, you know, writing platform. Different people write articles uh, for that platform, um, for that website. A good friend of mine, Will Carroll, used to write for baseball prospectus, and he wrote about breaking down environmental uh, factors, uh, day factors, time factors, fatigue factors, all these different things of of people getting injured, not only in the NFL, but Major League Baseball. And he wasn't saying why or when or anything like that. He was just saying, here's the situation. This is the part of the season he was in. This is how many innings they had. This is how many pitches he had. This is what, you know, and just showed um, the things that might have contributed or we looked at, well, it's almost like a, a weather forecaster. When when the weather forecast says that there's a 60% chance of rain today, what they're saying is that when the, um, the weather conditions, the barometer and all the other stuff that go into it, were similar in the past, it rains 60% of the time. Um, so... It's very similar to some of the things that's going on in baseball. We're saying when these factors happen, especially when Will Carroll used to write for Baseball Prospectus, when these factors all lined up, there was a 70% chance of this guy getting injured or you know maybe higher or lower. And a lot of times that's where most of the predictions come from. They're just basing it upon historical facts where or characteristics. When this situation was similar in the past, this was the result. So there's this percentage of chance that it's going to happen again. So I first looked at this article, and the first thing that hit me was a pitcher's view on the Tommy John epidemic. So I thought, a pitcher's view. Okay, I wonder who this pitcher is. And the article was written by John whole staff. Now, I don't know whether, because I'm not a uh, 
fanatical reader of baseball prospectus, you know, on a weekly or a monthly basis. I don't know if there's actually a person named John Holstaff. And if there is, I apologize because, um, you know, for my lack of uh, information on that topic. I don't think you're wrong with wonder. First, when you, when you put that on our show notes, I know you're, you're meticulous with, with, uh, with everything you do. I thought I wrote that somewhere and spelled it wrong. So I thought you were sending that to me because I didn't, that name didn't jump out at me either. I was like, so I was looking through my message to you. I was like, where did I spell that name wrong? Um, but a lot of times now, especially these analytic places, their articles are not written by real people. They're AI generated. And it's, it's a, we're losing the human part, not just in baseball, in writing too. Yeah. Or, I mean, it's John Holsef. So is this all the writers at Baseball Prospectus had a roundtable discussion and this is the yeah. fact that, I don't know. I don't know. Is it a fictitious person? I don't know. Could be a real person. I'm not, I'm not, you know, questioning that. I'm just, it just, it piqued my interest. So basically the whole article comes down to the author's viewpoint is nothing will change in this epidemic because the pitcher's goals is to produce outs and velocity is the biggest reason for achieving outs. And he's, he's talking about, uh, you know, Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball. Um, now, I agree with him, okay? The quickest way to improve your ability to get outs is velocity. But it's, in my opinion, it's not sustainable for all the reasons we've spoken in the past. Um, but he, he went on to bring up a couple of interesting points. He stated that um, people always tell you, well, it's completely unnatural to throw the baseball overhand. It's less stressful to throw it underhand. He brings up a point, well, in human adaptation, um, in the evolution of man, the, the man's adaptation or ability to throw a spear or throw rocks or, to, you know, for hunting changed uh, the diet and changed the overall evolution of mankind. So that was interesting because if a person wasn't supposed to be able to throw overhand, how does he, you know, throw a spear or throw a rock to a point where now he becomes a proficient and efficient hunter? Um, he then brings up that they've done studies where if you throw it at a young age, and I'm going to preface this by saying, if you throw correctly, he talks about uh, an adaptation in the shoulder called humeral retroversion, which basically, in his words, uh, allows an increase in external rotation. And we all know that uh, the degree of external rotation has a lot to do with the arm laying back and for you to have the ability to produce velocity. Um, so... Here's the thing that I take from that. Because of the structure of our society and the different negative things that occur, there's not a lot of times. I can remember back, I told this story in the past, uh, driving into Grand Junction, Colorado. I have a team uh, with my other two coaches that are going, who's going to play in the uh, Junior College World Series back in, uh, I think, 92. And... Um, one of the things that struck me was every time we went back and forth from the hotel to the practice field or hotel to the stadium, 
there was a lot of parks, uh, public parks in Grand Junction. And every time I passed, there was a young guy out there playing catch with his dad. And even back then, you know, we're talking early 90s. My thought was, you know, you don't really see that around New York anymore. Um, so now you think back to uh, our discussion, how four and five-year-olds are playing t-ball. Well, maybe four and five-year-olds should be playing catch with their dad. Maybe kids should learn to play catch and throw, you know, on a daily basis. Yet, I'll have kids that I'm working with, and I'll tell them specifically, okay, we're throwing a bullpen today on on, uh, on Tuesday. Before I see you next week, you play catch with your dad or practice with your team. we got to get another session of, of uh, throwing in or else, you know, get yourself back on my schedule. No, no, I'll be able to play catch. And then they come back the next week and with their busy schedules for different reasons, they haven't played catch. So the concept of playing catch when you're younger is kind of a lost art. And yet here we're seeing that if we do play catch and play the proper way when we're younger, we're going to increase the ability uh, to throw the baseball better. When, when you're watching, I know you've, you've- two young boys now and I've, I've got two two young boys and I, I I like that point because when you watch teams these kids are you know playing on all these elite teams and when you watch warm-ups I can't count I mean I, I refuse to start counting anymore the number of balls that get by two kids playing catch when I remember playing catch with my dad the glove was put up to his chest you hit him in the chest if you moved it other you, you had to hit the glove it was it wasn't necessarily a, a, a game that you played. Sometimes we would put points to it, but it was, this is how you play catch. This is what you're supposed to do. Um, and you kind of self-corrected to hit that target. And could you imagine if eight, nine-year-olds played and, and the sole focus of coaches were, we're going to teach a kid to throw and catch properly by the time they're eight and nine. Um, and uh, I watch teams warm up and I, I actually do this now coaching. And I tell the kids, I said, I'm going to bring five baseballs out here. And I better not have to give anyone out when we're playing, when our, we're doing our arm conditioning uh, from regular toss to, to long toss. And uh, because that's embarrassing. There's no pressure. There's no game going on, no runner stealing, no crowd yelling. All you're doing is stepping and throwing to a partner. And if you can't be mindful enough to do that, how in the hell do you play the game? But yeah, I agree. I don't, I don't think it's emphasized at all anymore. And that, you're right. It goes right back to the, the dad and the kid playing catch. Now the dad is driving the kid to pay 150 bucks to do some uh, throwing or swinging lesson. Correct. And I mean, we talk often on this show about the bounce back effect from, you know, amateur ball to, to major league baseball and then major league baseball down to amateur ball. <clears throat> Look how many outfielders are in a game now that can't throw. Yeah. Now there's, there's other reasons for it, but it's not emphasized. The other thing occurs <clears throat> all the way up to the major league level. It's not only just with the young guys is that, um, when you warm up, <clears throat> when you initially start, besides all your warm-up activities and your dynamic warm-up and a little stretch, you're supposed to warm up throwing with your whole body. But we see continually in all these warm-up throwing sessions and these throwing programs, a person only using their arm. And then you wonder why. When they go to throw the baseball in the game, they just throw with their arm or their upper body. 
because you're supposed to warm up your whole body. Two of the simple things that I work on exclusively with all my young guys is the elbow's got to get up to the shoulder, the hand's got to stay over the elbow, and your center of gravity, your navel, has to get past your front hip. Even the thought process, the simple line of your body should be tilted towards your target when you release the ball is something that's never been discussed with them. So that's why you see a lot of in young, young, young guys throwing, let alone pitching, is an over-rotation of the upper body. Well, all of a sudden, before the front foot hits the ground, the body's already rotating open. Um, yeah, they spin off, right? Is that the yeah, phrase? Yeah, exactly. And what's amazing is it goes back to this article because then the guy, he makes a statement. He says, and, you know, you're always hearing people say, oh, you're supposed to throw at your legs and, and, you know, use your body and the whole thing as if they think that that's going to um, prevent you from, from getting injured. And his, the way he articulates that is that he says that if you use your lower body correctly okay, and you produce more force in the kinetic chain, the increased force still has to go through the elbow joint. So his, his assertion is that we've increased stress, but we, we haven't reduced the, the risk of injury. And in our modern environment, I can agree with him because most of our training protocols and the things that you see done on a regular basis, the emphasis is always on the muscles. So in essence, let's go back to the old, uh, the old uh, study with Nolan Ryan and the Texas high school pitcher. Nolan Ryan only used the, uh, his external rotators to initiate the slowing down process. That was the only area of the arm and, muscle, arm and shoulder that he used during the throwing the baseball. And the Texas high school guy, who was pretty accomplished himself, used the muscles in his arm and shoulder throughout the whole throwing process. So I believe that we live in this world now where a majority of pitchers, whether you want to you know, blame it on the sellout for velocity, but a majority of the pitchers are contracting the muscles in their arm and their shoulder throughout the whole uh, throwing process. And the easiest way I can explain that, we, we heard Tommy Craig in the past say, the arm's got to go for the ride. And um, that's a pretty good analogy, but sometimes, you know, what, what does a young guy or even a coach really understand about go for the ride? So there was this quote that I came across, and it was from years ago by uh, Bruce Lee, the movie actor and the well-accomplished martial artist. And he said, the muscles must relax for the energy to flow through the body. We have to think about levers in the right place, all right? Not muscular contractions. Prime movers move the levers, stabilizers stabilize the joints. So as we've talked in the past, a majority of people nowadays throw the baseball and the, some of the stabilizers, especially in the shoulder, start to act like the prime mover. And there's muscular contractions throughout the throwing process. So if that's the case, um, the author of this article is correct. 
the more force we the more force we create through the kinetic chain still has to go through the jo elbow joint. Yes, we're not reducing the risk of injury. We're increasing the level of stress. Yes, I agree. However, that's not the way to throw a baseball, and that's the problem. That's where we're at the crossroad, because this article, Baseball Prospectus, it's a it's it's an extremely uh, respectable website. Their authors do a very nice job. It's very well known in the baseball community. And so there's a number of people that are going to see this article. Right? And the author makes some very, very valid points because he's just, as modern day analytics does, the simple thought of, well, if pitchers continually get injured, we have to stop paying them large amount of money. It's a Band-Aid. Okay, it's a it's a reflex to a situation instead of actually solving the problem. <clears throat> so the article starts out a pitcher's view on Tommy John, the epidemic. But there's no solution. And what's interesting at the end of the article, he simply states, why is there no solution? Because nothing's going to change. That's the sad part. That's the sad part. Um yeah, other. That title was an attention grabber, though, right? You probably thought you're picking up and say, wow, somebody's got some insight other than what we we share. And I thought Tommy Craig's interview was phenomenal. Um, and we're, we're probably going to have him on doing something regular with us, just a dynamic thinker of the game. But when you read that article, that's the attention grabber you're talking about, that headline. It gets you thinking and get to the end like, sorry, there's no solution. Right. Those are guys I'd love to get. I mean, you 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 probably hear it as much or more than I do being out there, but everybody loves to throw those first 10 words at you. And I always ask them, I say, give me the next 10 words and I'll walk away. You'll never hear me again. We'll stop doing the podcast. You won't hear a darn thing me on social media. I'll walk away. But they don't have the next 10 words because that, that would require experience. It would require thought. It would require, as, as you mentioned earlier, hey, I could be right. I could be wrong, but let's generate some dialogue about this. Some meaningful dialogue. Correct. So Correct. Many times I've, I've told people I work with that uh, one of the phenomena that occurs nowadays is that if you're having a conversation with somebody and you're looking for it to be an in-depth conversation and whether you're solving a problem or you're just uh, conversing in different topics, is that um, beware of the guy that after the first five minutes of conversation, he just starts spitting back to you what you said in, in different terms, because then there's no depth of conversation. It's just, you know, rattling back and forth and there's really no discussion because the person's depth of knowledge isn't there. Basically, you know, um, everything they've done is, is a mirage. And you think about it, those type of people thrive in today's environment with the, uh, the social media and the little bits and the little this and the little that there's no, there's no in-depth. There's we no live life in 60 characters. Exactly. There's no in-depth <laughs> in change. And I, you don't have to use names, but I mean, you were at the highest levels of professional baseball. I mean, as a player and then again, as, as a, as a, uh, a coach, a scout, did you experience it at those levels as well? Yes. With yes. Again? Many times, many times. I experienced it uh, in the field of uh, strength and conditioning and personal training and and others uh, as assistant director of, of training you know, uh, for the facility up the 
the company up in New York City. Uh, you would interview people. I would interview people from some of the top uh, exercise physiology, fitness and health programs in the United States from University of Georgia, University of Florida, Springfield College. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. And, uh, and that same exact thing would happen, you know. Now, the younger guys just out of the school, they were, uh, they were open and they were fresh and they were looking to learn, but they had to get over the fact that a majority of what they learned in school was based on textbooks that were written 15 years ago. And in a field like exercise physiology and, and kinesiology, you know, it's an ever-changing world every day. It's something different. Um, but the and you're more, dealing with humans. You're not dealing with theory. Right. But the more, exactly. But the more experienced guys who have been, you know, around the block a couple of times, they start just basically telling you what they think you want to hear. Uh, yeah. And that stops the exchange of information because they're not bringing any original thought or or any original thought that they had processed within their own, you know, uh, mental processes to, to discuss it with you. Um, but I'll give credit to the guy that wrote this article, though. He brought up a couple, two other interesting points uh, that I was extremely intrigued by. And that was, this part was completely anecdotal. He tells a story that um, one of the pitchers, he w one of his teammates, had to go in for, uh, oh, I believe it was a torn lat or a lat problem. And during the process of having an MRI, the doctor informed him that, and my numbers could be incorrect here, but the point was that his UCL in his elbow was thicker than the average UCL. Um, and because of that, the doctor's feeling was, his opinion, that he would probably never tear his UCL because it was thicker. Now, that's the first time I've heard that. But it does bring up interesting thoughts of the first one that hit me was, well, <clears throat> Why don't we, um, as part of the whole development process, especially on the professional side, why don't we just MRI and measure the size of the different people's UCL, UCL, and then maybe that's a way to monitor workload. Maybe the guys with the big UCLs are the ones that eventually, if they have the mental side down, Pat, the starting pitchers. I mean, that's getting out there, you know, like some science fiction there, but it's a thought. Because if it was so easy for that doctor to say, this guy's UCL is thicker, he's probably not going to be able to, you know, tear it. Well, why hasn't anybody else ever had a conversation like that? Um, so that was an interesting thing. Yeah, I heard, I mean, you were diplomatic with reading it. It's, you, you came out with some good points, which I wasn't expecting before we started breaking it down and, and that was probably more my bias than anything else. Um, have you, have you looked up the guy to see if he's real? No, because we can make him famous in a hurry. No, the author, I, I haven't looked up yet. It would be, it'd be interesting. Um, but the other, the other point he, this guy made, and it's an extremely valid point is the pitch clock in major league baseball and minor league baseball. And his thoughts are, it doesn't allow 
doesn't allow for proper recovery. Now, here's a basic principle in uh, exercise prescription in how to control intensity, increase it or decrease it. And it's a simple thing that goes back years. I mean, I bet you you would see it in uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bible of Modern you know, Bodybuilding with all the exercises. When you vary your rest times, you're varying your intensity. Um, it's standard. Every, anybody who's exercised knows that. Uh, That's one of the early things I learned with, with, with working out, say, you know, if you, you can, you can, you know, you want to vary exercises, whatnot, shock the muscle, but that was the biggest thing. If you're, if you're looking for a harder workout, don't rest so long. Exactly. And now again, um, the manipulation of your rest periods also change the specific goal of your workout at that day. If you have longer longer rest with heavier weights, obviously it's more strength or power based. Especially when you're doing a power type of workout, you're probably going to do those movements at the beginning of your workout. You're going to give yourself ample time to recover. Now, just like the author said, we're not looking for. Um, well, first point is the commissioner's office is never going to change that rule. Because in their mind, they think that, hey, we got our games under four hours now. We got our games down. We, we cut the time of the game. This is working. This is the thing. And then what you get is you get all the, the minions in the media that bring it up and write articles about it or talk, to, talk about it on, uh, on television broadcasts and radio broadcasts. It's not changing. I've heard, I heard so many people bang on the rule early on. Then now it's like total flipped. Everybody loves the rule. Um, where, where do you, I, I hate over legislation of anything. Like I can't stand, like I know, understand in basketball, I get the shot clock, um, you know, and I, you know, with the stalling, it, it speeds up the game. I, I kind of agree with that, but with baseball, I've never, baseball t- was the only game without a clock really. Right. I mean, if, unless I'm missing one where, um, I guess golf and tennis, but you, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I wish they hadn't put it in. I, I didn't really recognize it, which is good this year maybe early on with Manny Machado calling them out. But uh, where do you stand on it? I mean, pitchers are taught to pitch to their own pace, but pitching fast to me as a hitter, I couldn't stand that. A, a pitcher get back on the hill, I hated it. Um, I wanted my time to process and get back. So the ones that took their time, I was happy with. But where do you stand on it? Well, I, I have two thoughts. And the first one is is about what this guy brought up. When you attempt to manipulate your, your rest or your recovery periods in order to change the objective or the goal of that particular workout, you're doing that workout in a controlled environment. So your body can adapt to it because that's the only thing that's changing. Right? You've, you've, you've limited the amount of variables in which your body has to adapt to. Well, when you're on the pitcher's mound, that is not a controlled environment. So I would rather, I would rather the rule was to try to eliminate the guys that took a minute and a half or two minutes between pitches instead of universally attempting to speed up everybody to where it's uncomfortable and they're not having the proper recovery periods. Now, I'll give you an example. Early on when they did this, there was a, a lot of people that wrote, well, you're not going to see those guys throwing 99 miles an hour because they can't recover uh, between pitches. And we did see a lot of that happening. But 
It's not that they weren't trying to throw 99 miles an hour. So we're now trying too hard within an environment that we haven't properly recovered. Why do you think injury rates have increased? And you'd have to train your body. You'd have to get very intricate with not just your, I would imagine, not just your your side sessions, but with your weight room sessions to train your body to recover all your muscles, your joints, your ligaments, your tendons to recover in that, whatever the time frame is to, to get the pitch. I would think that would be common sense. Yes. For guys. yes. Who's the kid from Toronto that struggled with it? Um, oh, boy. He was one of their studs. Ended up going down the minors. We never heard from the yeah, rest the of the season. Guy. Yeah. The challenge the Yankees or said that Garrett Cole was a cheater. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I forget his name right now. I can see him. I remember scouting the guy when he was in high school. Um, but that's neither here nor there. He, he, he physically couldn't do it. And I mean, we didn't hear from him all year. Yeah. And that hurt Toronto. Yeah. But like I said, um, we've, it, it, it's another thing where, it's like the story we had last week when, when the Toronto Blue Jays, in particular, uh, Bruce Walton and Donovan Santos put, put the physical Roy Halladay back together um, when they remade him. And, you know, Halladay put all the work in and bought into what was going on and was a solid citizen, you know. Uh, one of the things in the initial planning of that was if we do this, what could go wrong? If we do this, what 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 are we not looking at that might affect the success of this? Okay, there, you know, for for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So that was heavily weighted at the beginning of planning that whole thing out. So my question is, when we decided to put a pitch clock in, did we investigate any of the planning of what could be the effects, the side effects of this whole thing? I, I don't have the answer to that, you know, but I'm throwing it out there because I can remember back um, when in double A for the Brewers, the athletic trainer, right, he was doing, he was part of an independent research project and he would be um, attempting to measure recovery rates of pitchers through their, uh, their pulse rate, their heart rate. So after every inning, he would uh, take the pitcher's pulse when he first walked back into the dugout and when he was walking back out of the dugout to go out to the mound the next inning. And they monitored the, you know, their workloads and their practice and the whole thing, all based on recovery rates. Um, When that project was finalized, I had moved on to the, the scouting side, so I wasn't a part of you know some of the information that was shared. But it just showed you that even years before the rule change, people totally understood that the importance of training people for their recovery rates was just as important as training them for their performance on the field. And I think those are some of the factors that the commissioner's office and the people that were part of these moves, I, I don't think, took into account. Um, are you, I got two questions for you. One is, and then I want to go back on something I didn't understand. With, uh, there's all, now that we're starting to hear about these studies to fix the problems with pitching, 
<laughs> when, um, again, maybe this is a rhetorical question, but they created the problems and now they're going to have a study to study themselves. Kind of like you said, should have been done initially. You know, how do they, how does this plan, how do we, how does it not work? You know, what's the, what's the fallout potentially? And sometimes you can't see till you do it, <clears throat> but what, what on earth are these things about? Is this typical corporate, typical pro sports, create a problem? Let's, let's create a group now to fix the problem that we created. Pretend like we didn't have any part in it. Um, yeah, a little bit, but I mean, I think that type of thought process is kind of rampant in our whole society now. I mean, yeah, the, you know, ready, fire, aim, right? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a guy that likes to talk, go deep into politics, but you look at the problems at the border. And now because elections coming up, Biden says that, uh, you know, he's going to do this to fix it. But now the Republicans are standing in his way. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's the whole thing. It's yeah. No, I get you. It's, you know, it's like a vicious feedback loop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, had a, I had a medical question next. It was when you were talking about, um, and I wasn't sure of the significance of it, and, and maybe our audience would be along with me, but you, you talked about that anecdotal story where, um, about the, the UCL thickness. What, what's, the, what's the significance of that? What, I mean, Dave, I'll be honest with you. Because it's something that I just read uh, in this article, that just piqued my curiosity to me looking into, has anybody done any research on that? Okay. You know? Um, well, it's good that I feel smart now. I had the same question you had. Yeah. My initial, you know. I hadn't heard that before either. My initial thought, okay, was, all right, so how do we strengthen tendons and ligaments? in our training protocols. Now, down through the years, there's been people with different opinions on how to do it with, with heavy resistance in your strength training and, and low volume and, and other things like that. But that possibly is a topic to be researched further and looked into. And then it, it, it brought me back to, um, the old strength coach with the Phillies, I'm at a loss for his name right now, uh, but became ultra famous with uh, Steve Carlton's success. Um, and one of the things Steve Carlton did was uh, the old uh, rice bucket. Yeah. You know, and... Um, I used to do that as a kid. And obviously because it was something that others didn't do at the time, you know, there was a lot of controversy, whether it was good or bad. Now, I don't know if anybody ever finalized, you know, uh, Steve Carton will tell you it was good. A lot of other people, but some people might say it was bad. But the point is, is that that guy, I believe, was attempting to not only, well, obviously, if you strengthen the muscles of the forearm and, and the arm, then you're going to you're going to help because the prime movers do become the prime movers instead of having the stabilizers, right? Uh, doing the work, but I'm sure it helped the stabilizers also as far as in the elbow joint, you know? So I do think that more and more 
for example, the first thing we talked about today was, you know, uh, if you're a true professional, you, you don't need a pat on the back. You don't, you don't need to prove yourself right. Just keep doing what you're doing and help people. Um, it's the same with a lot of the research you see is about what the problems are. So we can, we can look at a guy who, uh, I guess you could say not necessarily trying to prove himself right, but, but a guy that the introduction to what they do is they tell you what everybody else is doing wrong, or they question like this guy in the article, why, uh, why the Tommy John epidemic. Okay. And yet there's not a lot of, uh, now based on this article, there's no solutions because there are none in his mind. Okay. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. I, I, you know, as a coach, I used to have that adage with players and assistants. I have it in my house too. You know, don't come to me with problems unless you have solutions because identifying problems, as you just stated it, it takes little to no intelligence to do. Yeah. But solutions require thought around it. And you, you, you have some solutions all right from the article. Like you have some thoughts as to how to, uh, revolving around secondary pitches. Well, I, I think that's one of the things that was not discussed in the article. Okay. And, and that's why this is a multifaceted, you know, problem that we're faced with. So after reading that article, I come across a presenter online on uh, YouTube and, um, I've watched some of this guy's stuff and it's quality. He does a great job. Okay. But sometimes I think that when you, uh, now we all do it. We, we all have our Facebook page and we, and we do social media and we try to spread our information, you know, so whether it's because so that you can help people or whether it's because then it's more people in your facility or, or maybe you're getting more clicks and you're getting paid for it by that, you know, whatever the reasons. Okay. Most of them, most of them are to me on the negative side because it involves uh, money, but, um, this guy does a really good job. But sometimes I think that when we have such a social media present presence to the point that we're not, we're not necessarily categorized as the instructor or the coach, but we are the content creator. The content creator is continually looking for new content, right? Now, maybe they can recycle uh, like what happens on Facebook, you know, Facebook memory from seven years ago. Well, seven years has passed. So if you recycled it, uh, it you're still trying to keep everything up to date on, on the thing, on the information to help them. So you can see that. But what happens besides recycling the information and updating it, you, you start to dive or to delve into areas that maybe aren't your area of expertise. Meaning you do phenomenal presentations on how the body works, on the proper throwing mechanics, on where your elbow should be, what your hips should do what upper body acceleration is, is you, you bring all the, the scientific mythology to it and you're really, really knowledgeable and you've helped a lot of people. But now 
we have a presentation on learning how to throw secondary pitches. Now, that's my title, learning how to throw secondary pitchers. The presenter's title was how to throw nasty sliders, curveballs, slurves, and sweepers with the emphasis on nasty. And the thing about it is he lumps them all together. You know, he he points out their differences, but he lumps them together. And the start of the conversation is during my career, when I used to experiment with grips, here's some of the ways that I found worked best. Well, this this individual's career, and now, please forgive me, but I did mention that this guy does phenomenal work in a lot of other areas. But on this topic, his career was as an undrafted free agent out of college and pitched uh, maybe a year and a half in rookie ball in low A. Okay, and now he's telling you from his experiences, um, this is what I recommend is best. Now, if part of his experience was that um, he was lucky enough to have Sandy Koufax or Burt Blylevin or Chris Carpenter and some of these guys, uh, Daryl Kyle, uh, some of these guys with nasty curveballs, that he was their his coach or coordinator, or he read their book, or he looked and or you know learned a specific way and searched it out to make sure he was doing it properly. That's one thing. But if it was solely that I'm throwing a bullpen and I'm experimenting and I change my grip and all of a sudden I see the ball, well, that's phenomenal. But that's probably based on what was best for you, not necessarily what was based on others. So I had this thought in my head, all right? It was, if you're a left-handed pitcher and you want to learn how to throw a left-handed slider, and I'll bring up the difference between left-handed slider and right-handed sliders in a moment. The best guy I know of who made a living, a career, a highly successful career as a closer in Major League Baseball Back in the day when a closer used to come in with the tying or winning run on base, they didn't start the ninth inning. It didn't matter what inning it was. The tying or winning run came to base. This guy was in the game, usually pitching out of uh, a lot of jams. Sparky Lyle. All Sparky Lyle did was throw left-handed sliders. Now, we've discussed the story in the past. He asked Ted Williams when he was in minor league camp with the Spring training with the uh, Red Sox, who was his, uh, he actually started his career with the Orioles, but because he was a bonus baby, they didn't put him in the major leagues. So he went to the uh, Red Sox, and then it was the infamous trade with Danny Cater that he became a Yankee. But he asked Ted Williams, and Ted Williams said, I don't know what you want to call it, but it, this is what it does. And then, you know, of course, to make the story sound Really good, you know. Sparky went out where the host family he was staying with in rookie ball or low A and just threw balls against the side of a barn and taught himself the slider. Okay. But 
the beauty of this story is that not only did Sparky Lyle turn it into a successful career of throwing only left-handed sliders and become one of the top closers of that time, that era, he taught the pitch to Ron Guidry and Dave Ligetti. Well, it revolutionized Guidry's career. Guidry in the minor leagues was a fastball, curveball guy. Sparky would, you know, tell you stories, and I'm privy to this information because I worked a year with Sparky Lyle. And, uh, you know, that Guidry at the start might have had all the answers, and next thing you know, he got to the big leagues, and his, uh, you know, his world was shook a little bit because these hitters are good, and and he went to work, and Sparky taught him the left-handed slider, and the rest is history. Ron Guidry had one of the best left-handed sliders in the history of baseball. When that year he went 25 and three, I mean, he was unhittable. Then he taught it to Rigetti, and it allowed Rigetti to become, went from a starting pitcher that threw fastballs and curveballs uh, to one of the top closers as in his time, throwing a lot more left-handed sliders than he did left-handed curveballs, especially the left-handed hitters. Um, and that's what Rigetti threw, because he, he, he could snap it off, and he had that, he had a different, uh, both both lefties did Gidry and Rigetti had different deliveries than what you see nowadays, and uh, they hit the ball well. Um, but Rigetti Rigetti went from starter to closer, back and forth a little bit too. So yeah. he had success in both realms. My point is, is that you know all of a sudden that left-handed slider became so successful, you started seeing Steve Carlton and Randy Johnson throw it, and by the yeah. end of their career, they threw more left-handed sliders than they did curveballs. But the, my point is this: is that Go to the source. Go to where people have had success doing that. All right? Now, we're not going to all have the ability to go talk to Sparky Lyle, but Sparky Lyle's taught it to a lot of other people, you know, including myself. And that's the other story we've talked about in the past where um, later on Dave Stewart asked me, had I teach that slider to that pitcher so fast? And I told him how. And he said, wow, that's how Sandy Koufax taught me mine. Where'd you get this information? Well, it's funny. I first got it from Lance Nichols, my first manager in pro ball, who caught Sandy Koufax. And we continually worked on my left-handed slider. And then I worked with Sparky Lyle, and he confirmed everything in my thought process on how to learn the slider and how to teach it. So there are people out there, okay, that uh, are a little bit well-informed over some guy that's, you know, on YouTube saying, um, this is how I've experimented with it. Taking nothing away from them because they did the best they could and they're trying to do the best they can. Um, you know, it's like if you don't, if you, I'll give you the other example. If, you, if you're going to learn how to throw a curveball properly, which is not an easy thing to do. Who better to learn from than Sandy Koufax? Okay, we can't talk to Sandy Koufax. Well, how about this? One of the podcasts we have, Mark Wiley, had an outstanding curveball. In fact, came up in, I believe, when he, when he was part of the Twins organization and the connection with Bly Levin and different other people that had great curveballs. Um, you know, there's a reason why those things occur. Nobody was out there reinventing the wheel. Nobody was making presentations, you know, on social media saying this is how you do it. They actually were out there doing it and then teaching it to others and teaching it to others successfully. Um, 
so that's the that's the thing, you know. And I think in uh, in closing, it relates to a, a story I have um, about understanding the source of the information and to learn from the proper sources if you have the ability to. And that is uh, my years as the pitching coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers. The major league pitching coach was Mike Maddox, who was an outstanding pitching coach. And his strength was he could teach you how to get big league hitters out. He was outstanding at it. He was one of the first guys that I heard speak of throwing front door changeups. We won't get into the depth of that right now, but he was always innovative on how to put different pitch combinations together. He could break down by watching a pitcher and learning what that pitcher's stuff was and how hitters would react to it. He had the ability to watch a pitcher during a game and help them with the game plan as it adjusts as the game goes on to see what hitters are doing or how hitters' swings were reacting to the pitcher's stuff on that day. He was outstanding. Um, Probably one of the best that I've had the – ability to see, you know, hands-on, person-to-person, see him live. Um, But you have to understand that Mike Maddox was pitched 16 years in the big leagues, mainly as a middle reliever, and he'll say it to you himself. Every spring training, he knew he had to come up with something new. He had to tinker with this and tinker with that to make sure that he made that team, you know. He wasn't... uh, on the level, if you would say, of his brother, who, you know, was a Hall of Famer and was on the team, you know, from day one. So it's a success story on one side that for 16 years he was able to do that. And that's what he's really good at. But you do understand that he'd be the first to admit when uh, TrackMan first came to the United States, um, the developers of TrackMan I believe one of the first places they came to was Milwaukee Brewer spring training because Doug Melvin was extremely open-minded and always was looking for an innovative way to improve, to help the environment in which his ball players were trying to play the game of baseball. So we're in spring training and the meeting is with uh, Doug introduces Mike and myself to the people from TrackMan. And they start going through their presentation and the whole thing. And, you know, there's a lot of science, a lot of biomechanics and other things involved in their presentation. And Mike says to him, guys, no disrespect. I said, he goes, but I don't understand a word you're saying, but Jim does. So finish your presentation to Jim. I got to get some other things done. And then TrackMan finished their presentation with me, and we went over the facts. Well, here's the beauty of Mike Maddox. He knew what his strengths and weaknesses were. He knew how he could help, uh, how he could help a uh, young pitcher learn how to get big league hitters out, and that was his job. And he, he prided himself in doing that job, and he did a great job doing it. You're not going to see. Mike Maddox, he knows that he's not going to get on YouTube and make a presentation on 
the scientific biomechanical breakdown of the pitching delivery. But if Mike Maddox was on YouTube or did a talk uh, or you went to uh, some clinic that he was a guest speaker or seminar or whatever, and he wanted to teach you on how to understand your stuff, how to self-evaluate, how to read hitter swings, how to get big league hitters out, I'd be the first one in line to listen to him. Um, And that's why when we started this topic of learning secondary pitches, because if we get into the manipulation of the baseball based on spin rates or axis of spin or, or, you know, uh, or depth, depth of the pitch or how much it drops or what's the lateral drop, what's the vertical drop and all this. And we attempt to then manipulate how we, throw that baseball in order to bring that result, which is a common occurrence today. We, uh, we're, we're attempting to go into a, a, an area, which is a, a, a path of self-destruction. I mean, it's a path to injury. And that's why I say, um, you think, you think Sparky Lyle could throw nothing but left-handed sliders for that long and have a successful career if he was doing it incorrectly? I don't think so. Um, look at the guys like Burt Blylevin in that curveball. You think he could throw curveballs for that long? Incorrectly? No. Do you think he was attempting to manipulate the baseball out front, or he was attempting to get the levers in the right position so the result on the baseball was correct? So th- these are the things to, to you know to look at. Um, you know, it's like even the work I do. Um, with clients. There's many, many times I work with hitters. Now with the older hitters, the strength that I bring to the table is to have them understand how a pitcher is going to attempt to get them out, how a pitcher is going to see their swing, what the first move of their body is, where their hands are, what their swing path is, and then what type of pitches or what type of pitch combinations and process would that pitcher attempt to do to get them out? And that's where my strength is. Now, can I help them with some biomechanical things? Yes, because of my background in kinesiology and other areas. But if some qualified, you know, if Charlie Lau or Walt Herniak or, you know, some of the other guys, uh, even the modern uh, uh, hitting coach for the Yankees that Jeter loved long, Kevin Long, if they had the ability to work with that young man, they should. But there's still something I bring to the table, but I'm not necessarily going to try to overstep my boundaries and correct every physical thing. So in that essence, when it comes to hitters, um, maybe you could say I'm the Mike Maddox of, of, of hitting instructors. Now, when I work with the younger guys, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things because there's some basic things that they still have to learn. Um, and, and I realize my limitations in that area. I mean, I, I could go on social media or whatever, or even in my presentation and say, I hit, I hit 465 in my last year of college and I did this and I averaged this home run and my exit velocity was this. And that's why I can teach you. No, no, no. That's, that's way overboard. You know, you deal with your strengths, understand what you can do and try to help people to the best of your ability. And, uh, 
basically that's the that's the way that today has come full circle as far as the podcast. You know, well, there's there's a lot. These kids and families are dealing with so much input, and I mean, you just gave great examples of professional baseball players that reach down to other professional baseball players to help them accomplish that secondary pitch. Guys are getting hurt throwing fastballs now, so it's not the pitch. It's throwing properly in the proper sequence. But here's the million-dollar question. You have the experience to tell the difference. I have the experience to tell the difference. How And, and the people in our circle do. Even we get confused sometimes looking at stuff. We've got to take a second glance. How does the regular mom and dad figure this stuff out? How do they know the difference between this guy should be instructing my child or woman? This person should not. Well, the first thing I would say is let's go back to the beginning of today. Um, on the throwing side of, of the ledger, kids need to play catch. Uh, I, I would rather a four or five-year-old play catch or learn the fundamentals of the game, as you had stated, playing catch and you know, not throwing the ball all over the place, than playing a t-ball league. So that establishes that thing right off the bat, because if more of that occurs, you're going to find that um, that that person is going to adapt and learn how they are supposed to do things the proper way. Um, as we get older, um, I still say that... Um, we play this game to learn how we should do it as an individual. Exactly. So if, if people, if people are touting their way of doing it, um, or you need to do this, or you need to get this product, or here's all the training tools that I use, you should use them. Um, that's a red flag. If if we run into a guy that um, part of their whole um, delivery is they're trying to prove themselves correct instead of trying to help the other individuals, that's a red flag. Um, if if your child or or the ball player, young ball player. Um, is necessarily being used so that uh, that travel team can be nationally ranked uh, or the win, you know, or all these different things that are performance related and it has more to do with that, that's a red flag. Um, you have situations where um, travel ball coaches are coaches in public schools. Um, that's a red flag to me because next thing you know, a majority of the guys that are the role players happen to play for that travel team uh, in their off season from school or all the best guys on that high school or middle school team end up playing on that travel team. You know, that's a red flag. That's a conflict of interest for me. Um, a person that's a quality instructor and is going to help you along this way, the first thing that they understand 
It's about the person they're trying to help. It's not about them. Um, what I say a lot to the people I meet is, yeah, at the beginning, we're going to talk a lot. We're going to try to get on the same page. I'm going to present some you know, basic fundamentals of what we're going to you know, go for. But after I evaluate how you do things and how you move, I'm going to try to explain to you and help you train to improve those areas. And then this is all about how you process the information so that you get better. This is all about you. This is not about me. Um, this is not like if you do things my way and next thing you know, I have a, a huge following of 150 people across the country that do things just my way. And now they've been successful and, or, and I can put your name on my banner or I can say that I did this or I did that. Now, let me preface that with one thing. When I currently say that I've worked with over 75 um, major league pitchers, I did that when I was um, a salaried employee of an organization. So during that process, I was never there saying I've worked with this guy. I didn't, I didn't talk to Giovanni Gallardo and say, well, I've worked with Chris Carpenter. You should listen to me. No, 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 no. I, yeah, you weren't using enough leverage. You, you, exactly. It, it, just, it just was your life. Yeah, that's what I did, okay, to help each individual, all right? Um, when that comes out, or if you see that on my website or anything currently, that's just to give credence to these are the people I've helped. It's not these are the people that learned what I told them, so that's the reason why they're successful. They're successful because of them, because they put in the work. They processed the information. They learned what was good for them, okay? So, I mean, that's a lot of info right there, but, and it's not the easiest thing to decipher sometimes in this modern world. No, that's the best I've, I've heard it put, though. And I love the phrase you said. That, that's funny you mentioned it. And I don't think I've ever told you this. On my practice plans, when I became a, my first time as a head coach, I was a baby. I was 28, Division One level. At the top of my practice plans, I had that phrase for myself. It was only on mine, and it said, it's not about me. And that was, and that's hard to do. I mean, cause we get caught up in our offense, our style of pitching, our style of hitting, and we take it personal and, and you got to always remind yourself, even the best, I think, uh, have to constant reminder, cause it's easy to take the great ones, take it to that edge. Cause you want to take it personal cause you want to help that kid out, but not to the point of it being your validation, basically. Correct. But, uh, I love the way you put it. I think that's the best. I've asked a lot of different people. That's kind of my that's my quest right there to, to try to help people with that. That's the best I've heard it put. I'm glad I, I'm glad I kept you for over. And I apologize for making you pitch extra innings today, but uh, no, no worries. I knew you had trained for it. It's what, uh, how, how can the audience find you? Remind me of your website and, and how to sign up for stuff. Yep. Uh, uh, .com. Uh, also on Facebook is Rooney baseball. Uh, you can send messages through the website. You can send messages through Facebook, uh, either or. Um, the most important thing is, uh, is, is 
go to the source. Try to find a source that has either learned from some of the best and has had positive experiences and is trying to turn those positive experiences and knowledge into information that your son or daughter can process and make it theirs so that they can be successful. Because what I say to all, say to all of them is, once the words leave my mouth, they're not about me any longer. They're about what you can comprehend, what you can process, and you can mold in a way that works best for yourself. And uh, if we can find a lot of guys out there like that, I think everybody would be way, way better off. Yeah, you got to uh, be challenging in this look at me social media world and really hard uh, for people to have original thoughts out there. I think that was a lot of the theme today, too. But uh, I'm with you. Unobstructed self-expression. You can tap into that. Let the kid figure out what works best for him using the guidance of obviously someone who's a seasoned professional that can teach. But I thought you brought some uh, a zillion nuggets today. This is, this is a We only have one show today, but audience, if you need to listen to this again, I encourage you to do so with a notepad, always with gym stuff. Take great notes. Uh, reach out to him. You're, you're, you're wasting a good resource if you're not. And he's very engaging. Um, and he'll spend time with anybody. So don't be intimidated either uh, about doing that. And uh, Jim, thank you today. Guys, for episode 453, 67,074 countries you got to treat. I thought that was good, 74 countries, till somebody, somebody, somebody told me we had 194. I was like, shoot, I got a lot of work to do. I still got 100 plus to go for us. But check our merchandise out on millions, hats, hoodies, and T-shirts for men and women. Great stuff. You got other things you want, just shoot me a text, let me know, and I'll do my best to get it. But uh, Jim Rooney with with toe the rubber episode 453 uh, appreciate it say jim thanks so much well like always dave thank you so much and uh we'll talk to everybody next week